0: Welcome to Origins. This is a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, anything really. If you're interested in everything and anything, come along and listen and enjoy the show. Visit my website for the show notes, www.origins. Looking for a podcast that's more challenging, more stimulating intellectually? Well, here's the place. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Welcome to Origins, episode 11. This one's entitled, A Lead on the Ark of the Covenant. Now besides that as the lead story, we have other stories which include, Why Scientists Love Game Consoles. They have found a rare Egyptian warrior tomb. We have the usual word Origins website. They have found some lost JFK assassination documents, and one from Russia entitled, Sergi's Letter. We have the usual mindless crap, which talks about the origins of words and sayings. Uh, A story about how cancer and bacteria may be connected. They have found a mysterious compound, which could be seen as the key to ocean life. Planet hunters, according to the BBC website, are set for a big bounty. In the Antarctic, they have found some marine wonders. And we have a little segment on weird science tidbits and oddities. This episode's lead story comes from the time.com website and it's entitled A Lead on the Ark of the Covenant. When we last saw the Ark of the Covenant in action, it had been dug up by Indiana Jones in Egypt and, arced and up by Nazis, whom the Ark proceeded to incinerate amidst a tempest of terrifying apparitions. But according to Tudor Parfitt, a real-life scholar adventurer, Raiders of the Lost Ark had it wrong, and the Ark is actually nowhere near Egypt. In fact, Parfit claims he has traced it, or a replacement container for the original Ark, to a dusty bottom shelf in a museum in Harare, Zimbabwe. As Indiana Jones creators understood, the Ark is one of the Bible's holiest objects, and also one of its most maddening MacGuffins. A wooden box roughly 4 feet by 2 feet by 2.5 feet perhaps gold-plated and carried on poles inserted into rings. It appears in the good book variously as the container for the Ten Commandments, the very locus of God's earthly presence, and as a divine flamethrower that burns obstacles and also crisps some careless Israelites. It is too holy to be placed on the ground or touched by any but the elect. It circles Jericho behind the trumpets to bring the walls tumbling down. The Bible last places the Ark in Solomon's Temple, which Babylonians destroyed in 586 BC. Scholars debate its current locale, if any, under the Sphinx maybe, beneath Jerusalem's Temple Mount, or, to the Muslims, the Noble Sanctuary, in France, near London's Temple Tube Station. Parfit, 63, is a professor at the University of London's prestigious School of Oriental and African Studies. His new book, the lost ark of the covenant, sol- solving the two and a half thousand year mystery of the fabled biblical ark, along with a History Channel special scheduled for March the second, would appear to risk a fine academic reputation on what one might call a shaggy ark story. But the professor has been right before, and his ark fixation stems from his greatest coup in the 1980s. Parfit lived with a Southern African clan called the Limba who claimed to be a lost tribe of Israel. Colleagues laughed at him for backing the claim. In nineteen ninety nine, however, a genetic marker, specific to descendants of Judaism's Temple Priests, or Cohen's, was found to appear as frequently among the Lemba's priestly caste as in the Jews named Cohen. The Lemba, and Parfit, made global news. Parfit started wondering about another aspect of the Lemba's now credible oral history. A drum-like object called the Nagoma Lungundu. The Nagoma, according to the Lemba, was near divine, used to store ritual objects and borne on poles inserted into rings. It was too holy to touch the ground or to be touched by non-priests, and it emitted a fire of God that killed enemies and, occasionally, Lemba. A Lemba elder told Parfit that it came from the temple in Jerusalem. We carried it down here through Africa. That story, by Parfit's estimation, is partially true, partially not. He is not at all sure, and has no way of really knowing, whether the Lemba's ancestors left Jerusalem simultaneously with the Ark, assuming, of course, that it left at all. However, he has a theory as to where they might eventually have converged. Lemba myth venerates a city called Senna, in modern-day Yemen, in an area with people genetically linked to the Lemba, Parfit found a ghost town by that name. It's possible that the Lemba could have migrated there from Jerusalem by a spice route, and from Senna via a nearby port. They could have launched the long sail down the African coast. As for the Ark... Well, before Islam, Arabia contained many Jewish-controlled oases, and in the 500s AD, the period's only Jewish kingdom. It abutted Senna. In any case, the area might have beckoned to exiled Jews, bearing a special burden. Parfit also found 8th-century accounts of the Ark in Arabia by Jews turned Muslims. He posits that at some undefined point, the Lemba became the caretakers of the Ark, or the Nagoma. Parfitt's final hunt for the Nagoma, which dropped from sight in the 1940s, landed him in sometimes hostile territory. Bullets shattered the rear screen of his car, he writes. Ark Leeds had guided him to Egypt, Ethiopia and even New Guinea. "'Until one day last fall, his clues led him to a storeroom "'of the Harare Museum of Human Science in Zimbabwe. "'There, amidst nesting mice, was an old drum "'with an uncharacteristic burnt black bottom hole, "'as if it had been used like a cannon,' Parfit notes. "'The remains of carrying rings on its corners, "'and a raised relief of crossed reeds "'that Parfit thinks reflects an Old Testament detail. "'I felt a shiver go down my spine,' he writes." Harford thinks that whatever the supernatural character of the Ark, it was like the Nagoma, a combination of reliquary, drum and primitive weapon, fueled with a somewhat unpredictable proto-gunpowder. That would explain the unintentional conflagrations. The drum element is the biggest stretch, since scripture never straightforwardly describes the Ark in that way. He bases his supposition on the Ark's frequent association with trumpets and on aspects of a Bible passage where King David dances in its presence. Parfit admits that such a multi-purpose object would be very bizarre in either culture, but insists there's an argument for a connection between them. So, had he found the Ark? Yes and no, he concluded. A splinter had carbon dated the drum to 1350 AD, ancient for an African wood artefact, but two and a half thousand years after Moses. Undaunted, Parfit asserts that this is the Ark referred to in Lemba tradition. Lemba legend has it that the original Legoma destroyed itself some 400 years ago and had to be rebuilt on its own ruins, constructed by priests to replace the previous Ark. There can be little doubt that what I found is the last thing on earth in direct descent from the Ark of Moses. Well, perhaps a little doubt. It seems highly unlikely to me, says Shimon Gibson, a noted biblical archaeologist to whom Parfit has described his project. You have to make tremendous leaps. Those who hope to find the original biblical item, moreover, will likely reject Parfit's claim that the best we can do is an understudy. Animating all searches for the Ark is the hope and fear that it will retain the unbridled divine power the Old Testament describes. What would such a wonder look like in our postmodern world? What might it do? Parfit's passionately crafted new theory, like his first, could eventually be proven right. But if so, unlike the fiction in the movies, it would deny us an explosive resolution. following story was emailed to me by a friend of mine from the talk shoe network lynn in canada has sent me the story about the antarctic marine census finds bizarre wonders plate-sized spiders glass-like meter tall Lance. If you'd like to email me a story as well, my email address is paulrex at paulrex.com. That's P-A-U-L-R-E-X all one word. Um, and if you have a link, just include it in the email and if I find the story suitable, I'll include it in one of the upcoming episodes of Origins. Now Lynn has two podcasts you would might be interested in. One is called Cultural Soup and the other is called Chemical Soup. If you're interested in either of those shows, just go to www TalkShoe.com, do a search and you'll find when the next episodes are due to be recorded. Come along and join in, they're usually good fun. And uh, now to the story. Scientists investigating the icy waters of Antarctica said on Tuesday they have collected several mysterious creatures from 2,000 metres below the ocean's surface, including giant sea spiders and huge worms. Australian experts taking part in an international program to conduct a census of marine life in the ocean at the far south of the world said many species may never have been seen before. Some of the animals far under the sea grow to an unusually large size, a phenomenon called gigantism that scientists still do not fully understand. Gigantism is very common in Antarctic waters, Martin Riddle, the Australian scientist who led the expedition said in a statement. We have collected huge worms, giant crustaceans and sea spiders the size of dinner plates. The specimens were being sent to the universities and museums around the world for identification, tissue sampling and DNA studies. Not all of the creatures that we found could be identified, and it is very likely that some new species will be recorded as a result of these voyages, said Graham Hosey, head of the census project. In some places, every inch of the seafloor is covered in life, Riddle said. In other places, we can see deep scars and gouges where icebergs scour the seafloor as they pass by. Among the bizarre-looking creatures the scientists spotted were tunicates, plankton-eating animals that resemble slender grass structures up to a metre tall, standing in fields like poppies, Riddle said. Other animals were equally baffling. They had fins in various places. They had funny dangly bits around their mouths, Riddle said. They were all bottom dwellers, so they were all evolved in different ways to live down on the seabed in the dark. So many of them had very large eyes. Very strange looking fish. The expedition is part of an ambitious international effort to map life forms in the Antarctic Ocean, also known as the Southern Ocean, and to study the impact of forces such as climate change on the undersea environment. Three ships, the Aurora Australis from Australia, France's La Estrelaibe and Japan's Umitaka Maru, returned recently from two months in the region as a part of the Collaborative East Antarctic Marine Census. The work is part of a larger project to map the biodiversity of the world's oceans. The French and Japanese ships sought specimens from the mid- and upper-level environment, while the Australian ship plumbed deeper waters with remote-controlled cameras. Scientists are planning a follow-up expedition in 10 to 15 years to examine the effects of climate changes on the region's environment. story by Helen Briggs from the bbc.co.uk website. Planet Hunters Set for Big Bounty Rocky planets, possibly with conditions suitable for life, may be more common than previously thought in our galaxy, a study has found. New evidence suggests more than half the sun-like stars in the Milky Way could have similar planetary systems. There may also be hundreds of undiscovered worlds in outer parts of our solar system, Astronomers believe. Future studies of such worlds will radically alter our understanding of how planets are formed, they say. New findings about planets were presented at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or the AAAS, in Boston. Michael Mayer, an astronomer from the University of Arizona, said he believed Earth like planets were probably very common around Sun like stars. Our observations suggest that between 20 and 60% of sun-like stars have evidence for the formation of rocky planets, not unlike the processes we think that led to planet Earth, he said. This is very exciting. Mr Mayer's team used the US Space Agency's Spitzer Space Telescope to look at the groups of stars with masses similar to the Sun. They detected disks of cosmic dusk around stars in some of the youngest groups surveyed. The dust is believed to be a byproduct of rocky debris colliding and merging to form planets. NASA's Kepler mission to search for Earth sized and similar planets, due to be launched next year, is expected to reveal more clues about these distant, undiscovered worlds. Some astronomers believe there may be hundreds of small rocky bodies in the outer edges of our solar system, and perhaps even a handful of frozen Earth sized worlds. Speaking at the AAAS meeting, NASA's Alan Stern said he thought only the tip of the iceberg had been found in terms of planets within our own solar system. More than a thousand objects had already been discovered in the Kuiper belt alone, he said, many rivaling the planet Pluto in size. Our old view that the solar system had nine planets, or eight these days, will be supplanted by a view that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of planets in our solar system he told BBC News. He said many of these planets would be icy, some would be rocky, and there might even be objects with the same mass as Earth. It could be that there are objects of Earth mass in the Oort cloud, a band of debris surrounding our planetary system, but they could be frozen at these distances, Dr Stern added. They would look like a frozen Earth. Excitement about finding other Earth-like planets is driven by the idea that some might contain life, or perhaps, centuries from now, allow human colonies to be set up on them. The key to this search, said Deborah Fisher of San Francisco State University, California, was the Goldilocks zone. This refers to an area of space in which a planet is just the right distance from its parent star so that its surface is not too hot or not too cold, to support liquid water to my mind there are two things we have to go after we have to find the right mass planet and it has to be at the right distance from the star she said And uh, now a medical story from the LA Times. Cancer and the Bacterial Connection is the title. Germs may actually help our bodies fight tumors, which means an infection-free lifestyle comes at a price. This is written by Brendan Borrell, special to the Times, February 18, 2008. In the 1890s, a New York surgeon named William Coley tested a radical cancer treatment. He took a hypodermic needle teeming with bacteria and plunged it into the flesh of patients. After suffering through weeks of chills and fevers, many showed significant regression of their tumours, but even Coley himself could not explain the phenomenon. His experiments were sparked by the observation that certain cancer patients improved after contracting infections. One patient experienced regression in a tumour in her arm after developing St Anthony's fire, a streptococcus skin infection. Doctors at the time considered Coley's bacterial mixtures to be more black magic than medicine, and with the advent of radiation therapy, the well-meaning doctor was soon consigned to the annals of quackery. But today, some scientists think Coley had it right. Germs can teach our bodies how to fight back against tumours, Dr. John Timmerman, a cancer immunotherapy expert at UCLA's Johnson Cancer Centre, said this revolution has produced the most exciting sets of compounds of cancer immunology. These scientists have not yet proved their case, but new studies are revealing that certain cancers may be reduced by exposure to disease-causing bacteria and viruses, and pharmaceutical companies are testing anti-cancer treatments that capitalise on the concept by using bacterial elements to boost the body's natural immunity. The studies also imply that our cleaner, infection-free lifestyles may be contributing to the rise of certain cancers over the last 50 years, scientists say, because they make the immune system weaker or less mature. Germs cause disease, but may also fortify the body, a notion summed up in a 2006 report by a team of Canadian researchers as, Whatever does not kill me makes me stronger. Almost a century after Coley, in the 1980s, dermatologists began noticing that patients with severe acne, which is caused by another type of bacterium, have reduced rates of skin cancer, lymphoma and leukemia, according to a paper by Dr. Mohammad Namazai at the Shiraz University of Medical Sciences in Iran. Studies showed that these bacteria, when injected into animals, appear to stimulate the immune system and shrink tumours. More recent evidence for this phenomenon comes from studies on cotton and livestock workers who are constantly breathing endotoxins, a component of bacterial cell walls that causes swelling of lung tissue. In reports published in the last two years, Harvey Chekaway, a University of Washington epidemiologist, has found that female cotton workers in Shanghai have a 40 to 60 percent lower risk of lung, breast and pancreas cancer than other factory workers. Other recent studies by Giuseppe Mastrangelo at the University of Padua in Italy found that dairy farmers exposed to high levels of manure dust are up to five times less likely to develop lung cancer than their colleagues who work in open fields. For the dairy farmers and cotton workers, it's good news and bad news, Chekoway says. They have lower rates of cancer but tend to have higher rates of other respiratory problems. Sniffing cotton dust or inducing pimples is never going to be a therapy, he says. But studying the body's reactions to bacteria could explain why cancer rates go down upon endotoxin exposure. And that might help in developing anti-cancer drugs. Dr. Arthur Krieg, Chief Scientific Officer of the Boston-based Coley Pharmaceutical Group, thinks the success of Coley's toxins comes largely from a difference between DNA of humans and bacteria and viruses. In 1995, Krieg was at the University of Iowa working with strands of DNA created in the lab, hoping to find a way to turn off genes involved in the autoimmune disease lupus. To his surprise, this DNA stimulated the immune cells he was studying in the lab dishes. I got interested, and I got puzzled, he said. His synthetic DNA contained several regions called CPGs. In humans, that region has a kind of chemical cap on it, but bacteria and Krieg's synthetic DNA lack that cap. Thus, in effect... Exposure to that CPG makes the body think it's being assaulted by pathogens and triggers the immune system to shift into attack mode, and in doing so, more effectively, battle cancer cells. Krieg saw medical potential. Maybe one could design small drugs with CPGs in them and use them as immunity boosters. After patenting the method, he left his university job and founded Coley Pharmaceutical Group, which was acquired by the New York-based drug company Pfizer in January. Five years after his discovery, Krieg's first compound has proved safe in early trials, but has not yet been proved effective. Last year, the injected compound failed to increase survival time in a trial of 1,600 lung cancer patients, also undergoing chemotherapy. But Krieg thinks it will prove effective in other patients. It's just a matter of finding the right way to use it, he says. Timmerman is a strong believer in CPGs and has been using them with the antibody drug rituximab in his lab research on mice. Finding the right drug combination is the key, he says. It's very naive to think that a single off-the-shelf immune stimulant is going to magically treat cancer. Krieg's CPG-based chemicals have proved useful in another arena. Because CPGs boost the immune system, they can also enhance certain vaccines. In a trial sponsored by the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, one of Krieg's chemicals, VaxImmune, accelerated the body's response to anthrax vaccine by a factor of two, from 40 days to 20 Other collaborations are exploring using CpG-containing DNA to develop hepatitis B vaccines and anti-asthmatic drugs. The company has many CpG compounds, four in clinical trials. But Don McAdam, Chief Executive of MBVAX Bioscience in Ancaster, Canada, is not sure that the healing properties of Coley's fluids are due to a short strand of DNA. The immune system is very complicated, he says. Any of these therapies that are doing one little thing are very likely to fail. And so McAdam wants to revive the formulation that Coley himself found most effective. A mixture of two kinds of bacteria, Streptococcus and Serratia. Such an extract would contain naturally occurring CPGs, endotoxins and other bacterial components that may have therapeutic potential. McAdam has solved Coley's major difficulty, maintaining consistency of the brew from batch to batch. His preparation has been tested on terminal cancer patients outside the US and Canada, and he contends that 24 in 38 patients have shown signs of tumour regression, although nothing is published yet. Dr. Vikas Samarte, a professor at Harvard Medical School, says he hopes to run clinical trials once the product has been manufactured according to Food and Drug Administration guidelines. Other groups have been experimenting with injections of other types of heat-killed bacteria, including Myobacterium Vicae, a tuberculosis relative. In two studies in January's European Journal of Cancer, researchers report that these bacteria may help fight certain lung and renal cancers. The first study is a reanalysis of a trial with 162 patients who received heat-killed bacteria and chemotherapy. In the original study, the treatment didn't seem to improve survival and in 2004, the company developing the therapy, London-based Silence Therapeutics, gave up on mysobacterium. But John Stanford, a shareholder in the company and a researcher at the University College of London, says these studies were poorly designed and analysed. When he and collaborators re the results, they found that mysobacterium injections could increase survival of adenocarcinoma patients by four months. Stanford believes that part of the bacterial cell wall switches the body from producing ineffective antibodies to sending out cancer-killing blood cells. In the second study, researchers reported that 60 renal cancer patients injected with myobacterium survive just as long as those treated with standard chemotherapy. Stanford has formed a company. Imodulon Therapeutics, and wants to run trials with a stricter and more intense injection regime to repeat the results and hopefully extend a patient's lives longer. Although both Krieg and Timmerman are inspired by Coley's work, they question the philosophy behind reviving Coley's preparation and using other bacterial extract. But Krieg says, as a physician, you have to maintain a sense of humility and avoid being overly sceptical. Music for today's podcast comes from the PodSafe Music Network, and we'd like to thank them for allowing us to use the royalty free music as we have done in the past. If you'd like to visit the show notes for this episode, it's info. I have another podcast you may be interested in. It's called Bizarre Bizarre, B-I-Z-A-R-R-E-B-A-Z-A-A-R, all one word. It's listed in talkshow.com as well as iTunes. It's a lighthearted look at the unusual, the bizarre, the strange, the weird, the funny, the lovely, the nice stories found on the internet and elsewhere. If you'd like to make a constructive criticism of today's show or send me some links for a possible future show, don't forget it's paulrex, P-A-U-L-R-E-X, at paulrex.com. The livescience.com website is reporting a mysterious compound is seen as the key to ocean life and it's by Cassandra Lopez from the University of Miami. When bits of natural organic matter from leaves and other sources break down, they can enter rivers and ponds and cause a build-up of yellow-brown organic matter that amasses as the tiny plants die. The drab material is known as chromophoric dissolved organic matter, or CDOM. And while its origin is fairly well known in coastal and inland waterways, scientists know far less about the origin and chemical composition of the material in the oceans. Scientists believe. Heterotrophs, or organisms that cannot produce their own food, such as bacteria, produce and release the mysterious group of organic chemical compounds into their surrounding environment as they decay, and new studies are now focusing on understanding CDOM in the oceans. Researchers know that CDOM, when struck by sunlight, plays a critical role in ocean chemistry impacting reactions that can affect greenhouse gas emissions that can in turn warm the planet, sulfur compounds that can cause cloud formation that can cool the planet and iron concentrations that are critical to ocean plants. By understanding marine CDOM, scientists will better understand life in the oceans and how organisms and compounds in the seas are affected by light. One group of U.S. scientists has been studying CDOM since 2003, with several members recently travelling aboard the research vessel the Roger Revelle to look at the material both at and below the ocean's surface. According to University of California at Santa Barbara Researcher Norm Nelson, nobody's done this before. Few have looked at oceanic CDOM anywhere except in the surface layer of the ocean, where it's illuminated by the sun. That's why researchers are grateful for the chance to go to sea. It's a great opportunity to go to sea to test our hypotheses and discover new things, said Nelson. It's worth all the long hours and the weather and all the difficulties of travel. Because it is an emerging area of study, the Clivar CO2 Steering Committee selected the researchers to participate in the selected Clivar cruises. The CDOM group has received renewed funding from NSF for some of these cruises, and NASA has recently granted funding for the optics work. So how exactly does a researcher get involved in studying matter of such mysterious origins? Often it starts out as simple curiosity. We got into the study of CDOM by accident, said Nelson. My colleagues discovered the presence of an unknown factor that controlled the colour of the Sargasso Sea off Bermuda that wasn't phytoplankton, or the tiny marine plants, which we'd always assumed was the most important. I made some measurements that demonstrated it was CDOM, and a whole new area of research opened up for us. By studying the amount of light going into the ocean and the amount of light coming out of the ocean, scientists can validate ocean color remote sensing measurements and quantify the light available for photochemistry and photobiology. All of these are related directly or indirectly to CDOM. On the 18S Clivar CO2 cruise aboard the Roger Reville, scientists measured CDOM levels below the surface using a suite of instruments, such as a handheld profiler that principally contains light sensors, a spectro that measures how much light is absorbed by CDOM at different wavelengths of light, instruments that face upward and measure light coming from the sun, and instruments that face downward to measure the radiance spectrum, a measure of light colour bouncing back. The handheld profiler also contains a fluorometer to measure chlorophyll in plants and a sensor to measure turbidity, the amount of tiny debris particles floating in the water. The researchers also used an innovative instrument called a CTD, Conductivity Temperature Depth Recorder, rosette a system of specialised bottles attached to a metal framework that travels deep into the water column to gather samples. As one of the primary instruments for the Sklyvar cruise, it collects water that researchers later analyse for a range of information and also houses additional sensors. In addition to the sensor data, the researchers collect actual CDOM specimens and phytoplankton, as well as information about the impact of bacteria. The detailed study of CDOM will help researchers bring Earth-based data to bear on years of satellite measurements of phytoplankton. CDOM plays an important role in controlling the colour of the ocean as observed by satellites, absorbing ultraviolet and blue light and making the ocean appear more yellow. Scientists estimate the amount of chlorophyll present in seawater by measuring how green the water appears to satellites. And CDOM, in concert with the blue colour reflected by ocean water, helps make the ocean appear greener than it is, throwing off estimates of how much phytoplankton is in the seas. In addition to providing fundamental information about the nature of CDOM, The new studies will allow scientists to validate remote sensing estimates of marine plant biomass and productivity and may open new possibilities for using ocean colour remote sensing with studies in areas such as photochemistry, the photobiology of ultraviolet radiation and even ocean circulation. now from the damn interesting website, Sergi's litter. From the 1920s through the 1950s, a Soviet scientist by the name of Sergi S. Brukonhenko spent countless hours slaving away in his laboratory. In his homeland he was known as a respected researcher for his influential insights into blood transfusion. Not content with his previous achievements, Sergi wanted to push his work to the very limits of possibility. His macabre research focused on the possibility of sustaining life through artificial means. His lab was home to all manner of bizarre experiments and occurrences. His staff quickly became accustomed to the sight of disembodied heads and desiccated animal corpses. As uncomfortable and ghastly as it was, his findings would prove influential to many modern medical procedures. Sergi's intention was to create the world's fully functional heart-lung machine. In essence, these are devices that can provide the body with oxygenated blood while a patient is otherwise unable to. This could be for a variety of reasons, most notably while in surgery for a heart transplant or bypass. It's extremely hard to operate on a beating heart, so these contraptions are needed to keep a patient alive during invasive heart surgery. Beginning his work in 1920, by 1925, Sergi's autojector was already being shown to the general public, consisting of automatic pumps, a reservoir for storing blood, and two tubes for injecting and extracting the blood. It's a dangerous, primitive-looking machine by today's standards. However, by most accounts, it was dependable and performed its job adequately. Not content with his early success, Sergi got to work on a new project – one that would take a far more unsettling turn. Determined to learn all he could from his autojector, he began experimenting on dogs. In true revolutionary fashion, Sergi's early experiments focused on liberating canine organs and appendages from the oppressive shackles of their privileged bourgeois bodies. His scientists managed to keep a heart beating and a lung functioning independent from their bodies. They could keep a severed head conscious for short periods and could even bring a dog back from the dead. As incredible as it sounds, these claims are supported by scores of eyewitnesses as well as reliable documentation. All of these achievements can be seen in Experiments in the Revival of Organisms, a 1940 film filmed with dour Russian nurses and canines in various stages of death. The most amazing and unsettling part of an already amazing and unsettling movie is the famous dog's head presentation. In it, technicians place a freshly severed dog's head on a small table. The creature is then fed a supply of air and blood using Sergy's systems of tubes, pipes and basins. As proof of the experiment's success, the head is subjected to all manner of stimuli in an effort to show that the head is in full control of its faculties while on the machine. Its pupils adjusted when exposed to a spotlight, its mouth accepts and swallows candy and licks its snout clean when covered in citrus. Its eyes tear when an irritant is introduced, and it even reacts to the sound of a hammer being struck nearby. As if a conscious severed head weren't enough, Sergi ends his movie by resurrecting a dog from the dead. The process involved draining the blood from a living dog and leaving it for approximately 10 minutes. The technician then connected the dog to the autojector, pumped its blood back in and waited a short time for the heart to begin working again. According to the narrator, these resurrected dogs went on to live normal lives after their ordeal on the operating table. Unfortunately, things aren't always as they seem. Experiments in the revival of organisms is not without its detractors. Many argued the film is at the best exaggerated Soviet propaganda, or at worst, an outright fake. When watching the movie itself, it's clear there is no way to prove many of the things being shown. Because the shots are tight, changed frequently, and the camera itself never moves, it stubbornly resists any attempt at scientific scrutiny. Taken by itself, experiments in the revival of organisms would fail to satisfy anyone not already predisposed to believing it. With some fervour probing into the details of Sergi's research, a few strategic omissions become evident. The severed head only survived for minutes on artificial circulation, as opposed to the hours purported by the narrator. The resurrected dogs came out brain-damaged and usually lived no more than a few days, rather than the years of happiness and virility that the test subjects in the movie experienced. All of this, though, must be weighed against the fact that Sergi's research directly contributed to breakthroughs in the field of artificial life support and organ transplanting. His experiments were largely successful, but apparently not successful enough to make it to the general public without a rose-tinted filter. For his contributions to Soviet medicine, he was posthumously awarded the Lenin Prize. Unfortunately for man's best friend, the Soviets weren't quite finished with their experiments. Not long after Sergei's work, Vladimir Demikhov decided that experimenting on one dog head wasn't just enough. Demakov was already a famous scientist for his previous work on canine organ transplants, his research being integral in proving that organ transplants in humans were a realistic possibility. That's why in 1954 he unveiled the world's first surgically created two-headed dog. This involved grafting the head of a puppy and sometimes parts of its upper body onto a fully grown large breed dog. Somehow managing to outweird even Sergei's experiments, Demikov had some convincing footage to support his scientific assertions. Unlike experiments in the revival of organisms, footage of the two-headed dogs was often filmed in public settings and included longer, uncut shots. These factors led to Demikov's films having a bit more legitimacy, although deception is certainly still possible not to be outdone by their cross-ocean rivals, the United States engaged in their own experiments involved attaching or swapping body parts. A contemporary of Serge's named Robert E. Cornish did his own research and won his own kind of fame in the area of dead dog revival. He used a technique involving chemical concoctions and a decidedly less high-tech artificial circulation mechanism. By seesawing the corpses to keep the blood circulating, Cornish would inject the dogs with an anticoagulant and adrenaline mixture. Although his first couple of experiments failed, he eventually managed to revive the asphyxiated dogs. Cornish, whether through humour or hubris, named each of his test dogs Lazarus. Like Sergius, the Lazarus dogs were severely brain damaged as well as blind. They lived for months afterwards with Cornish, their shambling and struggling, supposedly frightening all the other dogs in the house. Unlike Sergis, Cornish wasn't regarded as a hero by his peers. In fact, he was eventually forced from his research position at UC Berkeley, probably owing to the questionable merit of zombie dogs and the media's unfavorable coverage of his work. In the 1960s and 70s, Robert J. White of Cleveland, Ohio, put himself on the world scientific map with his research on the successful transplanting of organs and body parts. In the 1960 he created a two-brained dog to prove that the brain was an immunologically sound organism, unlike the heart or kidney. The brain can be transplanted with little likelihood of the organ being rejected by the body. In a continuation of this research, in the 1970s White and his team managed to successfully transplant the head of a monkey onto the body of another monkey. With the inability for the scientists to reattach the severed nerves of the animal, it was paralysed from the neck down. Understandably angry upon awakening, the monkey's first course of action was an attempt to bite the scientist working near him. It was soon clear that the test monkey retained full control over everything above the neck It was able to blink, eat and move its facial muscles. Insofar as its head was concerned, it was as if the operation had never happened. It's hard to imagine experiments like these being done in the 21st century. With the advent of animal rights groups and growing concern for the plight of mammalian test subjects, a world that would tolerate such ethically ambiguous experiments is quickly becoming a thing of the past. However, the work of these mad scientists while, perhaps off-putting to most of us, has actually done a great deal for the medical world. Sergi's autojector paved the way for our modern artificial life support machines and White's experiments in organ transplants helped us better understand the body's physiological ability to adapt. Together with the work of other medical pioneers, this work ultimately led to the creation and continued success of surgeries we take for granted today. Without these men, it's only a guess as to when life support machines or heart transplants would have become a possibility. One must wonder what medical breakthroughs are looming just over the horizon and which ones are worth the lives lost to discover them. Dead as a Doordale What's the origin of the term? In the centuries before the doorbell, a visitor's arrival was announced by pounding with a knocker upon a metal plate nailed to the door. The nails holding the knocking plate took a beating and had to be routinely replaced. These useless door nails were referred to as being dead. A dead ringer. What's the origin of that term? The word ringer dates back to 1890 and was originally horse racing slang for a horse with a proven track record that was knowingly substituted for a less qualified, untested horse. Ringer is now used as slang for anything that has been tampered with or unfairly altered. The dead in dead ringer is simply an intensifier, meaning absolutely, and since a ringer must resemble the thing it replaces dead ringer has come to mean something indistinguishable from another thing or person. And where does the term doughnut come from? In the late 15th century Dutch bakers used to make what they called oliekoeks or oily cakes. These oliekoeks were the first doughnuts, although they never had holes in them. They were essentially balls of dough that absorbed a great deal of grease during the frying process. Now for the origin of the word. In the early 1600s, pilgrims learned how to make ollie cokes and gave them a new name, doughnuts. The new name came about because the little balls of dough looked like walnuts. A baker's dozen. In medieval times, a baker who shortened his customer was tossed in jail for a short time to think about his mistake. So to avoid the inconvenience, they started putting 13 buns in a customer's order Of a dozen. Backseat driver. Cars of the early 1900s only had one seat but it was able to hold two or three people. When backseats were eventually added they were too far back to effectively have a conversation with the driver. All of that changed with the introduction of the 1912 Essex coach which featured a box like enclosed body that made it easier to talk. Passengers started taking advantage of the opportunity to talk to the driver from the back seat, including where to turn or stop. And now from the NationalGeographic.com site, a rare Egyptian warrior tomb is found. An unusual, well preserved burial chamber that may contain the mummy of an ancient warrior has been discovered in an acropolis in Luxor. Scientists opened the tomb found in Draa Abdul Naga, an ancient cemetery on Luxor's west bank, on Wednesday. Inside the burial shaft, a recess crudely carved from the bedrock, experts found a closed wooden coffin ascribed with the name Glikur, which translates to Excellent One in ancient Egyptian. Near the coffin they also found five arrows made of reeds, three of them still feathered. A team of Spanish archaeologists made the surprise find during routine excavations in a courtyard of the Tomb of Jeity, a high-ranking official under Queen Hachatsup whose burial site was built on top of graves dating to the Middle Kingdom, 2055 to 1650 BC. The coffin dates to Egypt's Middle Kingdom era though the cemetery is better known for its use during the New Kingdom of 1550 to 1070 BC. Based on the coffins, inscriptions and pottery found near it, experts date the burial to the early reign of the 11th dynasty, which lasted from 2,125 to 1,985 BC. Soldiers played an important role in society during that time, when Egypt was reunified after years of civil war. Some intact burials from that period have been found in the 1920s. But the leader of the new excavation, José Gallen of the Spanish National Research Council, said the new find could offer a fresh look into the era's burial customs. It's fairly uncommon to find nowadays an 11th dynasty intact burial. This is really remarkable, Gallen said. It gives us information about the continuous use of the necropolis and about a period that was not so well documented. The discovery of burials belonging to soldiers and mercenary who had elevated status in the wartime society are even rarer, according to Salima Ikram, Professor of Egyptology at the American University in Cairo. Only a handful have ever been unearthed, Ikram said. It shows that there were a lot of warriors that had been in use, she said. Because of their prominence in calming things down after the Civil War, they probably were wealthier and regarded with more honour than in earlier periods, and that is why they have nice burials. The wooden coffin adorned with drawings of Iker presenting offerings to the goddess of the heavens, Hathor, was fairly well preserved, though it suffered some damage from flooding and termites, according to experts who pried it open. Inside the coffin, the archaeologists found Iker's mummy lying on its left side, next to two bows and three staffs, which would have been used to indicate his high rank. Usually the important people carried a staff as a way to be recognised as chiefs of a tribe or family, said Galan, adding that his team had not yet analysed the newfound artefacts. The presence of bows and arrows means that Ikur was likely a hired soldier in the service of a king, though the exact details are unclear. It means that this person was a fighter, said Zahi Hawass, Secretary General of Egypt's Supreme Council of Antiquities. He was fighting in the army or something like that. There were many fighters joining the king, and this could be one of them, said Hawass. Spanish archaeologist Galán and his team plan to remove the mummy from the coffin to X-ray it and determine more specifics. We don't know about the origin of Kerr, Galán said. We don't even know if he was Egyptian, Nubian or Libyan. From the Daily Mail in the UK, lost JFK assassination documents including killer's transcript found in Dallas courthouse. A batch of old documents linked to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy has been found in an old safe at a Dallas courthouse. They include what appears to be a transcript of a conversation between the killer, Lee Harvey Oswald, and Oswald's killer, Jack Ruby. Also in the stash were letters reportedly from former District Attorney Henry Wade, the prosecutor in the Ruby trial, as well as official records from the trial, a gun holster and clothing that probably belonged to Ruby and Oswald, the current DA Craig Watkins said. But the most controversial item is a transcript of an exchange between Oswald and Ruby in which they discuss killing Kennedy to halt the mafia-busting agenda of his brother, Attorney General Robert Kennedy. The Dallas Morning News said one theory about the transcript was that it was part of a movie script Wade was working on with producers for a film that was never made. The transcript resembles one published by the Warren Commission, which investigated Kennedy's assassination and concluded that Oswald acted alone. The FBI claims the conversation between Oswald and Ruby, this time about killing Texas Governor John Connolly, was definitely a fake. Connolly was riding in the car with Kennedy and was wounded in the attack. The documents documents may be a President's Day gift to conspiracy theorists who have long questioned the official US government version that Oswald acted alone when he shot Kennedy on November 22, 1963, as that a President's motorcade swept past the Texas School Book Depository in downtown Dallas. Nightclub owner Ruby subsequently shot Oswald dead at point blank range two days later as police were escorting their prime suspect. Ruby died a few years later from cancer. And from the telegraph.co.uk website, Roger Highfield, the science editor, writes about why scientists love game consoles. Leading scientists are turning to the extraordinary power of game consoles to do their sums and simulate everything from colliding black holes to the effect of drugs. Reprogram a PlayStation and it will perform feats that would be unthinkable on an ordinary PC because the kinds of calculations required to produce the realistic graphics now seen in sophisticated video games are similar to those used by chemists and physicists as they simulate the interactions between particles ranging from the molecular to the astronomical. Such simulations are usually carried out on a supercomputer, but time on these machines is expensive and in short supply. By comparison, game consoles are cheap and easily available, says the new scientist. There is no doubt that the entertainment industry is helping to drive the direction of high-performance computational science, exploiting the power available to the masses, which lead to many research breakthroughs in the future, comments Professor Peter Coveney of the University College of London, who uses supercomputing in chemistry. Professor Garav Khanna at the University of Massachusetts has used an array of 16 PS3s to calculate what happens when two black holes merge. According to Professor Khanna, the PS3 has unique features that makes it suitable for scientific computations, namely the cell processor, dubbed a supercomputer on a chip, and it runs on Linux, so it does not limit what you can do. A single high-precision simulation can sometimes cost more than 5,000 hours on the TerraGrid supercomputers. For the same cost, you can build your own supercomputer using PS3s. It works just as well, has no long wait times and can be used over and over again indefinitely, Professor Karnas says. And Todd Martinez has persuaded the Supercomputing Centre at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, to buy eight computers, each driven by two of the specialised chips that are at the heart of Sony's PlayStation 3 console. Together with his student, Benjamin Levine, he is using them to simulate the interactions between the electrons in atoms, as part of work to show how proteins in the body dovetail with drug molecules. He was inspired while browsing through his son's games console's technical specifications. I noticed that the architecture looked a lot like a high-performance supercomputer that I had seen before, he says. That's when I thought about getting one for myself. An effort to interconnect tens of thousands of PS3s is underway with... Folding at Home, an effort based at Stanford University to study the way proteins fold, which plays a key role in Alzheimer's, Huntington's disease and Parkinson's disease. With about 50,000 such machines, the organisers of this huge distributed computing effort hope to achieve performance on the petaflop scale. The Wii, made by Nintendo, has a motion tracking remote control unit that is cheaper than a comparable device built from scratch. The device recently emerged as a tool to help surgeons to improve their technique. Meanwhile, neurologist Thomas Davis at the Vanderbilt Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, is using it to measure movement deficiencies in Parkinson's patients to assess how well a patient can move when they take part in drug trials. And for our final segment word origins. Where do the words Black Friday and Cyber Monday come from? The Friday after Thanksgiving is called Black Friday. It's the start of the holiday shopping season and is the busiest shopping day of the year. Commonly thought to be so called because it is the day that retailers go into the black in other words become profitable for the year. This isn't actually not the origin of the name Like other black days, Black Friday is so called because it is not a pleasant day. In this case, it is the traffic and crowds that make the day unbearable. The term dates to at least 1975, when it appears in the New York Times on the 29th of November. Philadelphia police and bus drivers call it Black Friday that day each year between Thanksgiving Day and the Army-Navy game. It is the busiest shopping day and traffic day of the year in the Bicentennial City, as the Christmas list is checked off and the Eastern College football season nears conclusion. And the Monday after Thanksgiving has been christened Cyber Monday. This day is alleged to be the busiest online shopping day of the year, with people using their internet connections at work to shop. The day, however, is not the busiest online shopping day of the year. In fact, it is nowhere near the busiest online shopping day. Cyber Monday was coined on the 19th of November 2005 when Shop.org an Association of Online Retailers made the claim to the New York Times that it was expecting a substantial sales increase on that day hence the catchy cyber monday so called because millions of productive americans fresh off a weekend at the mall are expected to return to work and their high speed internet connections on november twenty eight and spend the day buying what they liked in all of those stores Well, that brings us to the end of episode 11 of Origins. I'd like to thank you for listening. Remember, if you'd like to give some feedback to the show or contribute some links to websites with articles that you think will be appropriate for the show, it's paulrex at paulrex.com. If you'd like to go to iTunes or TalkShoe, and visit the um, Origins websites there or the Origins links. You can provide some feedback, by the way, of stars or comments there if you wish that everyone can read. Uh, If you could, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for downloading the show, and I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.